score. Uh, I'm thinking we'll probably put a pin in the Bible study come uh, Thanksgiving. Resume either after Lent or after or after Advent or after Lent, one of the two, we'll just see. But now we're getting people here, so I kind of hate to... Uh... Anyway, angels and demons. Uh, last time we talked about how... Uh... Well, we just were finishing up some basic ideas about... We talked about how the number and ranks of angels, um, how they're... Scripture tells us that there's a lot of angels, that there are different kinds of angels, but it doesn't really tell us much more than that. It does give us the very strong uh, statement um, by the fact that it points out two of these specifically that each that there are angels with specific. Let me turn that down to uh, silence. All right, but there are the angels actually do have specific identities. When we when we talked about them having being personal beings, that is beings with their own intellect, identity, will, and so forth, that was very much comes to a head in the fact that there are angels like Gabriel and Michael who are mentioned both in the Old and the New Testaments. And they have specific tasks, apparently. Gabriel, very much a messenger of some key uh, things about God's plan that he makes known to people at very important times. Uh, Michael, as some kind of protector of God's people, and uh, certainly a very high angel, even called a prince among the angels, who uh, overtly fights against uh, the forces of Satan, um, which also brought us to briefly mention what we're going to talk about at length today, that there's apparently a lot going on over our heads in the heavenly places, some cosmic warfare that we're blissfully unaware of, largely, between the uh, angels that serve God and the angels that oppose God, otherwise known as demons. Like I said, we're going to move into that talk about demons and the devil more today, but there were a couple things we didn't quite finish up as we were talking about the various things that God uses angels for. Um, specifically, two popular notions about angels that are worth uh, looking at and uh, at least giving a sense of what the Bible allows us to say or doesn't allow us to say. One of the big ones, of course, is uh, guardian angels, right? We've all heard of guardian angels, I'm sure, right? Um, by the way, how many of you believe there are guardian angels? I think, hmm, I think so. Some of you do, some of you maybe. Uh, something that we can actually say about this from Scripture. First of all, what do we mean when we say guardian angel? Uh, if There's a couple of things you could mean by it. Uh, clearly, at least from what we talked about with respect to Daniel and to the book of Revelation about Michael, Michael is in some sense charged with defending and guarding a people, right? That's just how the scripture in Daniel talked about Michael, that he's the defender of God's people Israel. So in that sense, there's clearly guardian angels who are tasked with defending and caring for large swaths of people. Uh, of course, usually what we mean by guardian angels today is that there's something like a particular angel assigned to you specifically, right? At least that's a popular notion. Well, what, is, what about that? Let's look at what uh, scripture actually says here. Um, it's worth saying there is no definitive scriptural statements um, one way or another about that kind of view of guardian angels. Whether God has assigned specific angels to you particularly and what those angels are responsible for. It just doesn't say specifically. But there are some verses that at least, you know, they, they say some interesting things that allow you to have at least a leg to stand on if you, want to, if you adopt that view. Let's turn uh, especially to Matthew 18.10 is one of the uh, big ones. And if somebody else wants to turn to Acts 12.15. If somebody want to read Matthew 18, verse 10 for us. See that you do not look down on one of these little ones, for I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. All right. There Jesus is referencing about not looking down, not despising children who are faithful to God. And the re one of the reasons Jesus points to for not looking down on them is he references their angels, that is, the angels of these little ones. And clearly he doesn't mean some kind of pastor or messenger because he says their angels in heaven are continually before um, my father. 
Uh, it, Jesus doesn't say too much more about this. So it's hard to say exactly what the relationship of these angels to these per- kids are. Whether there's a one-to-one kind of ratio here. There's an angel up there assigned to this kid. But clearly, there are angels in some sense who are uh, uniquely tied to these kids or who have a special interest for them. In such a sense that we should even have a certain sense of regard for these kids precisely because there are angels in heaven before his father who have some kind of special regard for them. That's the kind of point Jesus is making. So there's certainly something to say about the idea that there are angels in heaven who have regard for us here on earth, and even as individuals here on earth. That's the point Jesus is even making about these kids. That's true even of kids. Don't think it's just true of you mature adults. Does that mean a guardian angel? Who knows? It's possible. But clearly, um, there's some kind of special relationship between some angels in heaven and some individuals on earth, right? Uh, something else that goes along that line. Acts. Somebody want to read the passage from Acts twelve fifteen. You're out of your mind, they told her, when she kept insisting that it was so. They said, it must be his angel. All right, a little background to clarify what all that's about. This is where uh, Peter was in prison, and an angel appears to Peter and uh, makes the shackles fall off of Peter, leads him through the cell, the guards are all still sleeping, opens the gate for him, and sets him free to leave the streets, and then kind of just disappears. And Peter's wondering, he's sitting there, he realizes he wasn't just having a dream, that this really happened, and so he goes to a house of some of his friends that he knows, and he knocks on the door, and they're in there actually praying for Peter, thinking he might be killed that night or that next morning. And then one of them goes to the door, opens it, sees it's Peter, slams the door in shock and goes back and tells them rather than just, you know, let Peter in. And they're like, you're crazy. Peter can't be in there. He's in jail. And what do they say? It must be his angel. What do they mean by that? Again, that's that's an open question about what specifically they might be meaning here. Um, it's also worth noting that in this particular passage, we're dealing with a description of how these individuals were talking. So this is also possibly less an issue of Scripture trying to say a truth about angels and more just reporting these are people who have popular views about angels, good, bad, or indifferent. This is how they thought about angels, that somehow angels could appear in the place of people or with messages about them or something of that sort, maybe even like ghosts of people or something. That's not to say that's what the scripture is teaching about angels. It's just to say clearly in the popular piety of the day, there were views about angels where this kind of thing could, where people expected that this kind of thing was possible, where angels of particular people, whatever they meant by that, could appear. So what is it saying about angels per se? It's really hard to say. But at the very least, there was a popular belief that reflected that the idea that there were angels attached to individuals in some sense. And, like I said, going back to that Matthew statement, Jesus himself says something that kind of indicates that there's a special relationship between particular angels and particular people. So, what does that let us say about guardian angels? First of all, we can say that there are guardian angels, like we said at the beginning of this little discussion, in the sense that there are angels who are tasked with protecting people. That's Michael's whole deal, very directly in the scripture. Whether that means individual angel for individual person, that's a little harder to say. We can just say that there are specific angels who have special relationships or tasks with respect to specific individuals. Whether it means exactly what we mean by guardian angel, this is, who knows? Scripture doesn't say. So we would laud this uh, idea about guardian angels in the realm of what we would call pious opinion. What does that mean? What's a pious opinion? Um, A pious opinion, I guess, is something you would say, it's a view that you are free to hold or not to hold. You are not clearly going against scripture by holding it, and you're not clearly going against scripture by not holding it. It's something that you could legitimately point to verses and say, it may so be. (laughs) It may not be. But I'm not, it's not harmful to hold, it's not harmful to not hold the opinion. 
Makes sense? And it's done out of a sincere faith in trying to understand God. So it's a pious opinion. It's allowable. Um, we should respect it. We shouldn't fight about it. So if, if Bill wants to hold to guardian angels and for whatever reason I decide I just don't buy it at all, that's not going to keep us from agreeing we are good, solid Christians and I can respect completely Bill's opinion as possibly right. And Bill can do the same to me. That's what we mean when we say pious opinion. I kind of hope it's true, but I'm not going to pick any fights or start any arguments about it either. Uh, make sense? Now we're going to move... Uh, any questions or things you guys want to talk about with respect to guardian angels? And by the same token, if you ever have somebody say... Um, Boy, a guard, an angel must have been keeping me safe on that little uh, trip down the road because uh, something horrible happened. Hey, that may very well be true. Going to work one morning and took my eyes off the road. I was trying to put my glove back on. And I went off the road a little bit and tried to come back on. And, you know, didn't, I didn't do things right. And I started fishtailing and, and uh, ended up I uh, went off the ditch and hit a tree and rolled the cars, I don't know how many times. All I got was a little big scratch on my head up here. Crazy. <laughs> and again, while it's obviously true to say God kept you safe, and that's the one important thing we always want to say. We don't want to put things on guardian angels so much that we say it's the angel rather than God doing it. Clearly it was God, but why not? But God worked through an angel to do it. Well, I, I will have to say that when I saw that I had lost control completely, I mean, I hollered at the top of my lungs, God help me. Mm -hmm. And he did. Right. And again, God often works through people to, keep, to help people, right? I mean, why am I the age I am? Because God kept, brought me to this age. How did he do it? Through my parents. Uh, there's no reason that God wouldn't do, and in fact, the scriptures often paint pictures of God doing exactly that, working through angels and not just people to affect his will, right? So uh, you even have a relatively fair leg to stand on to have that opinion. Um, but we don't want to go so far and say you have to believe it, because that's what the scriptures clearly say. And we certainly don't want to go to the point of you can't possibly believe that. And if you do your ludicrous, superstitious, whatever, because that's clearly not in line with how the scriptures talk either. Yeah, I've known several people who have claimed to have encounters with angels and guardian angels and so forth. And you know what? Maybe so. However, let's move to, a, unless there's something else you guys want to talk about, which feel free or share stories or anything. Let's move to another question, which we did talk a little bit in our Bible study on Sunday, um, which is not so much an issue of pious opinion for reasons that will become clear soon. The, uh, the occasionally popular belief that people become angels when they die. How many of you have heard something like that before? Somebody say, I don't know, something like, well, I guess God needed another angel, or now they've got their wings, or something of that sort. And I mean, let's first of all say, when people express that view, very often um, they mean very well by it. They're obviously trying to give comfort to somebody who is in uh, trouble or trying to comfort themselves at the loss of a loved one. I mean, what's nicer to think, honestly, than that your loved one has now become one of the holy ones in heaven who enjoy to seeing God face to face, who worship him without ceasing, and maybe in some sense even become an agent of God's work in the world today, like the angels are depicted as being in scriptures. It's a comforting thought, right? But uh, let's talk about what the scriptures say. We, we came across this on Sunday because we came across a verse in the Bible which is very often pointed to as a basis for this view. We read the Mark one. Let's go to the Matthew one this time. We read the Mark one in, on Sunday. But let's go to the same basic thing in Matthew um, ver chapter 22, verse 30. And this is again where... Jesus is having this uh, on, in Holy Week, where Jesus is having this uh, argument with the Sadducees, who are trying to prove to him that there's no such thing as the resurrection. Um, by the way, the, the Sadducees also don't believe in angels. They don't believe you come back from the dead, that God doesn't raise people from the dead. You die, that's it. They also don't believe in heavenly beings like angels. 
Um, And so they go to Jesus to try to trip him up by trying to prove to him, logically, there can be no resurrection. He points to this thing we uh, talked about on Sunday, this Leverite marriage that uh, was commanded in the Old Testament, where if a woman marries and her husband dies without leaving a child, then... uh, it's her brother's obligation to come marry her and give her a child so that uh, the dead brother's family name can continue. And they take this and they run it to an absurd uh, logical conclusion. Well, let's say a guy has seven brothers and each of them die. They marry her, they keep dying, they marry her, they keep dying, but none of them are ever to pro- able to produce a child. Um, so she's had seven husbands all related to each other. In the resurrection, whose husband is she? And they think, well, of course, that's a ridiculous thing to envision in heaven, where you have seven husbands all fighting about who's really your husband and so forth. And they think, see, Jesus, resurrection is stupid. And as we saw, um, Jesus' reply uh, turns around to to basically say, no, you're being stupid because you don't understand what the scriptures actually teach about God. And you don't understand the power of God. And we'll just, uh, somebody want to read for us Matthew 22. Why not just read 29 through 32? And we'll just read that whole response of Jesus to them. Jesus replied, you are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. And why don't you read all the way up to 32, just to get the whole... Have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. All right, and so won't belabor the point just because we made it on Sunday. But again, Jesus has two line of attacks here. You don't know the scriptures and what they actually say. You don't know the power of God. What do the scriptures say? Well, what did God say to Moses? I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not I was. Um, I'm the God of the living, not the dead. Therefore, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who died a long time ago, I can still say I am their God because they will rise to live before me forever. So Jesus' basic point is, if you even knew anything about God, you know the resurrection is taught in the scriptures. My own view is he decided to make the specific comparison to angels as kind of a shot to their other big denial about the Old Testament. as a way of also saying, you say there are no angels, but in a certain sense, we'll be like the angels who are very real in heaven. So you're wrong about both of those counts. Nice job, Sadducees. But anyway, his other point that he makes is at the resurrection, things will just be different than they are here below. And he makes this statement, they will be like the angels in heaven. And so people have latched onto that and say, they will become angels in heaven because they'll be like them. That basically is a way of Jesus saying, they will become such beings. A couple of problems with this and why this is, that's a, a, a very big misreading of them. On the one hand, it's a pretty big leap to go from they are like them to saying that means they'll become them. For instance, I've... Uh, I've said, uh, for instance, that uh, my dad is kind of like a rock. Do I mean he's going to become a rock? (laughs) No, usually when I say I'm like something, I very specifically mean, but is not that thing. There's some point of comparison where they have a similarity, right? That's the whole word like. You learned it in English. Simile works the same way in Greek. Um, You're not saying that when something is like something, it means that they are equal to something. They are virtually identical. You mean, here's the thing in which they are similar to an attribute about that. So when I say my dad is like a rock, I don't mean he's actually a piece of stone sitting on the ground or ever is going to become one. What I mean is there's something about rocks that is also sort of like how my dad is. They're they're solid. (laughs) They're unmoving. (laughs) That's usually something about what we mean. By the same token, it's almost certainly grammatically the case that Jesus is not using they are like um, angels to say they will be. He means like. There's something, I'm making a point of comparison, there's something about angels that will also, that's true of angels that will also be true uh, in a similar way about people in that state. It's not to say people will be angels. It's to say, specifically, just as angels don't marry, procreate, and all of that, in the age to come, neither will people marry or procreate. In fact, that's exactly what Jesus literally says. 
Um, so it's an unjustified jump to say he moves from that point of comparison to a statement, in all things they will be alike. But even stronger than that, there's some serious theological problems with the whole story of salvation when you assert that we become angels. And that's where we, we really um, want to come down and say it's actually a problem to say that people become angels because it denies some very important truths of the scripture. It's not a pious opinion where you can safely hold it because, I mean, it's hard to say what scripture says about it and it's not damaging to your faith to hold it. This could actually be damaging to your faith. Because on the one hand, um, we'll just run through some things here quickly uh, that you learned from confirmation. When Jesus came down to earth, what did he become? A human being, a man. The whole first chapter of Hebrews, by the way, is dedicated to this point. Very explicitly, he was not an angel. He did not become an angel. He did not come for the sake of angels. He came as a man for the sake of humanity. And angels weren't glorified, but Christ, the God who became man, was glorified. And by the way, as the Hebrews go on to point out, what is the hope that you have? That you have a high priest like you in every way who lives to intercede for you, and on the basis of his very human divine intercession for you, you will share in the rest that he has now entered. That is to say, you will enter into the same glory he has now entered into. You will become like him, not like angels. Um, you will become closer and closer to the status, not the, I don't want to say that you become divine, but in the same sense that his own human body has been glorified, so likewise your human body and identity as a human will be glorified in the presence of God. If you become an angel, you become something that Jesus did not come for, on the one hand, and you actually move further away from what Jesus became. Because Jesus didn't become like man. Jesus became an actual human being. Here we're dealing with actual identity. Jesus became human. And remains, though God, human in the presence of God. To lose your humanity and become an angel, which is a fundamentally different kind of being than a human, is to become something fundamentally less like Jesus and fundamentally different than Jesus. Because now you stop being a human and become an angel. You stop being part of the race that Jesus is and become part of a different race. That's actually a step down to say you become an angel. So that's one, of, and by the same token, so that's one very big problem with it, is to become an angel actually removes us a fairly large step from Christ our Savior and our identity with him and his identification with us. Make sense? But on the other hand, um, what's the great promise? What's going to happen when Jesus comes back um, on the last day. What happens to all those people buried out there in our cemetery, for instance? They rise from the dead. There is a resurrection of the body. We say it in the creed because that's what the scriptures clearly teach over and over again. This is kind of Jesus' whole point against the Sadducees. There is a resurrection of the dead. A resurrection is not a transformation out of the body into some spiritual substance. It's literally a resurrection of the body. After all, what do we say in the creed? I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life of the world to come. What have we already asserted time and again because scriptures asserted angels do not have bodies. <laughs> They're fundamentally different than us. And their existence eternally will be fundamentally different from us in some profound ways. There will always be angels with us in the life to come. But they will not be resurrected human beings. <laughs> And you will not be an angelic, spiritual, bodiless thing like an angel. You will have a glorified body, but you will definitely be, have a human body. Like unto the body that Christ himself has, now that he has risen from the dead and lives and reigns to plead with his nail-scarred hands for you for all eternity. So, point being, we cannot place the view that humans become angels into the realm of pious opinion, but that is manifestly a false doctrine. It just opposes 
some basic tenets of the Christian faith. Not to say that if you hold it, you can't be a Christian. It's just to say you're holding things that actually denigrate the basic truths of the Christian faith in some profound ways. That Christ has become a human being for you, and that the hope he gives you is the resurrection of the body and the life of the world to come. Make sense? So, no, they don't, I, I, I apologize, well, I don't apologize, I'm, I should say, if you held that view or hold that view, I'm sorry, but it is a mistake, and it's not what the scriptures teach, and it's even less comforting than the truth of scripture. Why did God call your husband or your kid or your parents from this life? Why did my mom get called from this life? God didn't need any more angels. He's made as many as he'll ever want. Um, he can always make more, I suppose, if he wants to. Um, why he called her home from this life and out of my life is precisely because that was the promise he made to her in Christ. <laughs> I promise to call you out of this life of sin and death and corruption to wait with me in paradise for that further day, which is not yet today, when I will raise your body from the dead and you will live with me, with Christ, as Christ's sister. Why did he call her home? Because that was the hope he had given her from the day he baptized her. You are going to live as a glorified human being, as a sister of Christ, as a fellow heir of Christ in my heavenly kingdom. A little better than getting some wings, I'd say. All right, now to our, uh, our favorite topic. Let's talk about the bad side of all of this. All these good old devil and his uh, minions. Um, now, just to circle back to our very first thing. By the way, um, the name devil um, diabolos in uh, Greek and uh, the name, the word Satan, they actually have specific meanings, which weren't necessarily always the proper name of this particular adversary. Um, for instance, like we said, uh, the name Satan uh, actually is a word of a job. It's more of a, a role description than it is the proper name of the devil. It's just come to be the proper name of the devil in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, it was a legal kind of role. Not necessarily a bad one. It was the role of the accuser in a trial or an adversary. You have the, you have the defense attorney on the one hand, who's the advocate, and on the other hand, you have the prosecuting attorney, attorney the uh, adversary or accuser. Is the prosecutor evil? Maybe. <laughs> but in our own courtrooms, is the prosecutor always evil? Is the defense attorney always evil? sometimes. But point being, it's not about good or evil. It's about these are particular jobs they have. And in a certain sense, even the book of Job paints Satan's role in the divinely apportioned plan as that role. His role is to accuse humanity um, justifiably to a certain extent of their unworthiness to continue in God's presence, to continue to exist, and certainly to continue to enjoy any favor from God. After all, what has humanity done to earn anything from God? In fact, the only thing humanity has managed to earn in its entire uh, history of existence is to earn God's wrath, condemnation, and uh, eternal destruction. And that's what the devil points out ceaselessly. He accuses in the strict sense of plays the adversary to humanity. You broke that law. <laughs> that's a sin. You know what the wages of sin are? Death. You deserve death. God couldn't love you. God only hates you. Now, of course, the devil isn't just playing a neutral role, of course, in all of this. I'm just pointing out that the name Satan actually even appears, or the word Satan even appears in the Old Testament to describe neutral parties in courts of law. However, it did get migrated to describe specifically um, the prince of the angels who opposed God, because that is truly the primary way the devil does oppose God is by opposing humanity and serving as their adversary and their accuser. So that's who the devil is. His primary function, um, even though it is his intent is certainly evil, to oppose God, to bring God's works to nothing, is uh, to play the adversary to us. And he does it very well, by the way. He's very good at convincing us 
that we are no longer uh, worthy of God, partly by goading us into doing things that oppose God. He's also known as the tempter for obvious reasons. After all, what did he do to Adam and Eve? He tempted them to oppose God so that then he can turn around right away and do what? Convince them that God cannot love them. They need to go hide because God is going to want to bring the punch down on them. Um, separates them from God by, first of all, goading them to do evil and then highlighting very truthfully their evil. Um, why is Satan so good at his job? Because he's brutally honest, <laughs> frankly. Yes, he's a deceiver. Yes, he's a liar. But it's not often the case, um, as we'll talk about in a little bit, that he lies, that he uh, separates us from God in our own hearts and minds strictly by telling lies. His best tool is the truth. Just use the law of God himself against you. We're better at lying about that to try to hide ourselves and give ourselves a defense than the devil is. The devil is more than happy to show you exactly what God says about you on the foundation of his law. You think you're a good son. Well, let's look at your life, and now let's look at what God actually tells you you're supposed to be. And if you follow the devil down his very honest rabbit trail, you will find that he is absolutely right about you. You deserve nothing but God's condemnation, wrath, and ultimately hell. That's how he does what he does. But how did he come to be first? Let's talk about that. How did the devil even come to exist as this great enemy of both God and man? Well, we talked a little bit about this uh, last time, or a couple of times ago, when Sam asked, where did the devil come from? Um, first of all, where did the devil come from? Let's just start at the very beginning. How did he come into existence? Has he always been there? Yeah, he was an angel, which means, who made him? God. God made the devil. By the way, if you want to get into some rabbit holes, God know what the devil would ultimately do and become when he created him? Certainly did God. So why did God do it? Who knows? It's important to say God didn't cause the devil to do what he ultimately did. It's not like God forced the devil to do this, but God knew it would happen and in fact arranged his entire plan of salvation around creating everything exactly the way it is and knowing exactly how every step would go. Brings to some mind-bending uh, thoughts. But uh, it's worth noting, God is the one who created the devil. And uh, God is not only always more powerful than the devil, but God knew ultimately and even planned for what the devil would become. God, which is just a way of saying God remained in control the entire time and remains in control to this day and even uses the devil as his unwitting tool for working out his purposes. The devil is what we would say a rebellious but ultimately, and unwitting, but ultimately still a servant of God, just as all evil people are. God can channel even the worst, even Satan, to his good ends. And uh, as a very heavy uh, point in case in point, who do you think goaded the people to crucify Jesus? Ultimately, um, the devil. And the devil no doubt thought he was doing a great thing, putting his great enemy to death. And how did that turn out for the devil? How did what the devil's plan turn out for everybody? Great. In fact, by the way, I'm not just speculating. It literally says in the Gospels, Satan entered Judas and led Judas to betray Jesus. And that actually turned out to be exactly what was planned all along to accomplish the salvation of the world. So, point being... No matter what we want to say about the devil, ultimately we have to remember God is in control and can use even the worst schemes and plots of the devil and will use the worst schemes and plots of the devil to further God's own agenda. The devil never surprises God or gets the better of him. But God created him, so what happened? Well, he was an angel. We do know he fell. Uh, that is to say, he rebelled against God in a similar way that Adam and Eve rebelled against God, only with one crucial difference. Was there anyone there to tempt the devil the way the devil tempted Adam and Eve? No. Um, if you want to say that there was a difference between the fall of Adam and Eve and the fall of the devil and the angels, it's that the devil and the uh, fallen angels had no, uh, no one leading them by the nose. 
It came entirely from within them. The angels were created with a will, though, weren't they? And obviously, uh, somewhere in that will that God gave them was the capacity for some of them to uh, rebel against God. I have heard before that, but I don't know if it's true, I don't remember if I heard this or just dreamed it up in my head, but did, did after the angels, after the evil angels fell, did God remove the will from the rest of the angels that stayed with him? Well, um, it depends, I guess, on what you mean by the will. When we're talking, oftentimes when we're talking about will, what we mean uh, these days is free will, the ability to choose good or evil. So the, are you asking the question, could they change sides? Yeah. Okay. In, the, in that sense, it's, Scripture seems to be pretty clear that no, they will never change sides. They are, as uh, one of the early... Uh, theologians in the Lutheran tradition like to put it, they are confirmed in their evil. That is to say, God gives them no opportunity to repent, and there is no mode for forgiveness for their sins. Once they rebelled against God, they are lost for all eternity. So is it the same way for the angels that remained in heaven? Um, presumably. We don't know if it's possible for angels to rebel anymore or whatever else. We just know that uh, as far as Scripture seems to indicate, there is no repentance from uh, the fallen angels. And by that, for that matter, there's no apparent mode of reconciliation that God allows for them to have, the way he allows for people to come back to him. Which again, understand the greatness of the grace of God, that he is willing to give you opportunities that he is not even willing to extend to the angels in heaven. That he actually made a means by his own uh, son to come and redeem you and open a way to everlasting life, where uh, the book of Revelation is pretty clear <laughs> that hell has been, the fiery lake as it is, has been made for the devil and his minions, and uh, they will rot there for all eternity. Now, how many fallen angels were there besides? Well, let's turn to Revelation chapter uh, 12. Some of this will uh, be helpful for helping us start to talk about some of these questions like you're just asking there. Now remember, first of all, we're dealing with, Revelation is probably the one that gives us the most in-depth look at it, but it's also the book of Revelation, which is to say it's very directly highly picturesque poetic language. So it's hard to draw any firm and fast conclusions about exactly what Revelation is trying to say. But there are definitely some very uh, clear general truths we can say from this kind of stuff. Somebody want to read chapter 12. Uh, we'll go, first of all, well, 1 through 6 we'll start with. A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the na nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. All right, so, again, Revelation is kind of weird with its pictures. It obviously, all of these numbers and uh, things mean something, but it's not exactly easy to say exactly what they mean. Um, I'll just give you a bare interpretation that is fairly common. Um, first of all, who is the dragon? Satan. This one is pretty uh, clear, uh, specifically is what we'll see going forward further down, and uh, in line with what uh, Jesus says about, uh, for instance, he saw Satan cast out of heaven. So, 
the, the standard uh, sense of what this says is that this enormous dragon with all these heads and horns, heads and the number of heads and the horns is kind of indication of um, both his power and his pretensions towards power. Um, I won't go into all of the nitty-gritty details there, but uh, the idea is he's kind of a mockery of God by this amount of heads. Um, and he's, so there he is, the dragon, Satan up in heaven. Um, and by the way, with his tail, he sweeps a third of the stars out of the sky and flings them to the earth. One, interpre one frequent interpretation is that stars here represent angels. That is to say, the, uh, the devil led a third of the angels down with him um, into his fall. A lot, yeah. A lot of stars in heaven. Right. So, yeah, uh, point being, there's a lot, and this will come out again when we continue our reading of Revelation. So, how many? Who knows? We don't know how many angels were created. We just know there were 10,000 times 10,000 is one description, which is just a way of saying a whole freaking lot. <laughs> More than anyone could count. And the devil was, uh, the devil is clearly painted throughout Scripture as the head of all of these angels. All of them are his minions, his subordinates. He is the prince of all of these fallen angels and directs them. But he also is the one who, uh, in his rebellion, led a, what scripture, again, probably euphemistically, it's not probably saying, mathematically speaking, it was exactly 33.333% of the angels all went down. It's just to say, a whole lot, not the majority, but a whole lot went with Satan. So if there's guardian angels, what are the eight? Well, and this gets into the very interesting topic of demons and their role in the world. And we'll come to that in just a little bit here. Um, we might have to wait till next time just because of our timetable. But uh, yeah, that, that gets to the role. Um, just, at, I'll, just quickly as a brief kind of introductory answer to your question, just as angels have um, clearly the ability to interact with the world around us, um, and God sends them on particular missions where they interact in very definable ways with people from time to time. So likewise, demons, um, very clearly in the scriptures, are painted as afflicting the world, interacting with people, sometimes to deceive them, sometimes possess them, sometimes to do all kinds of different things. So uh, you might say there's possibly even angels in hell who make it their particular mission to destroy the life of some segment of people. It's possibility. Scripture doesn't, again, go into that kind of detail. But if you can assert that there are guardian angels, there's no reason to assert that there are not um, specific demons who have it in for you and would like to mess up your life. That brings to mind me the story of Job where Satan went to God and, or God was talking to Satan anyway, and the, and the Satan says to him, well, look at your servant Job, you know, you mm -hmm. get a hold of him and I'll show you that he won't stay true to you. Right. And the devil took a very specific interest in Job and even worked a lot of uh, very bad juju on Job. And by the way, always with the allowance mm -hmm. of God. Um, the devil could not exceed the boundaries of what God would allow him to do. But, uh, so do you still... suppose that, I mean, that happens with all of us, that, you know, who are Christians, you know, the devil and God may have conversations about us and things that happen to us are only allowed by God. Right, well, and we can only speculate about how often and frequent those, uh, particularly um, in view of some other things we're going to talk about with respect to Satan um, and how Jesus asserts, I've seen him cast down from heaven um, and other assertions that tend to give the impression that Satan no longer exercises his uh, heavenly role. That is to say, it's not clear that Satan has any access to come and talk to God in any way anymore, but it's not to say it's... An, We'll get into that in a little more detail. It's to say, certainly it's not beyond the realm of possibility to say Satan takes an interest in uh, afflicting particular people at any given time, and so do his uh, 
lesser angels who are uh, carrying out that same purpose of trying to destroy God's kingdom. And it's certainly the case, whether they have a conversation or not with God directly, God sets clear limits to how far they can go, because who can ultimately defy the naked power of God? (laughs) Nobody, not even the devil. Um, But we'll work our way into those kinds of questions, because I'm sure there's going to be a lot of stuff you'll want to talk about more specifically with this. Since Kevin isn't here, I think I'll ask, is there any significance to the 1,260 days? There have been so many interpretations. (laughs) The people who really, this is why I, I hesitate to get too much into the numbers, because aside from certain numbers, which have a very, a fairly clear pattern in certain contexts, there are a lot of numbers where there's just no way of knowing. Boy, somebody wants to get, but uh, anyway, um, the way those numbers have often been used is uh, they clearly are, they're clearly referencing some kind of timetable that God has for certain key events in his plan of salvation. Specifically, in this case, it's kind of like what you might say, the time of the church um, where God is preserving his church. The woman, by the way, almost certainly represents the church and the child that she's giving birth to is almost certainly Christ. Um, This woman not being Eve or Mary per se, but the whole idea of the human race faithful to God as God, God being the bridegroom of the human race and the the church, Israel, so on, being painted in scriptures as a woman who God has married and devoted himself to. Um, And in a very real indication, from the very beginning, God's plan in creating the human race was to bring forth Christ, the Savior of the human race, and uh, so to speak, the uh, the bridge between God and man, right? Um, And so the devil's whole plan um, early on, uh, this is, by the way, not necessarily saying any specific time that these events happen. It's just to indicate kind of a giant picture of uh, redemption history. So God, from the very beginning, has his, uh, his, chosen, his people, that, uh, the human race specifically, and more gen- or the human race generally, and more specifically Israel or uh, the church. And through that church, through Israel, he brings forth his son. The devil obviously is opposing this, trying to prevent Jesus from coming to be born. Hence all of those statements or all of the accounts in the Old Testament where Israel is constantly being beaten back to the brink of extinction. The, as the line narrows, Satan keeps working on the faith and uh, the life of Abraham to try to destroy him away from God's promise. Goes all the way up through all the kings, through all the uh, idolatry that he leads them into. And yet he can never quite keep it from happening where God's covenant with his people um, gets overthrown. Um, and anyway, uh, after the birth of Jesus, um, as we'll see, uh, this, on the one hand, God continues to take care of his church, his people, the woman, uh, hence this fleeing into the desert where she has a uh, sanctuary prepared for her by God, so to speak, for 1,260 days. We don't have a clue what that is supposed to mean, what length of time. It just is to say, the best we can say is, there is a period of time, we are now in that 1260 days, you might say, um, ever since Christ was born. The church is in the place in this world that God has prepared for her and uh, is preserving her from the assaults of Satan, even as Satan works tirelessly to destroy her, as we'll come to see in the next few verses. And a lot of Christians have tried to use that number to figure out, well, what's the date the specific calendar date and time that this period ends. And, they, and then you get all, you can find hour after hour of shows on these Christian networks. You can go to the, uh, the Schofield Bible is one of the most famous of them, where they try to tie revelation numbers into the numbers and uh, kinds of things pointed out in Daniel, also another highly poetic, symbolic book. Um, and they try to predict the dates that these things are pointing to. Because what the end of this 1260 very clearly is saying is that's the end of the woman's um, time in the desert. And basically, when Christ returns, defeats the devil and establishes the kingdom. And uh, by the way, if you want to know exactly what the 1260 means, I can point you to all of the failed attempts to dates signify to say nobody has a clue. If you find somebody who says, I figured it out, just 
shake your head and walk away. Because I can point you to huge dates uh, where hordes of Christians got together time after time after time convinced that this guy did have it figured out. They had big old parties set aside. They go off up some mountains. They even... Uh, burn all their bridges, deal with all their affairs, and then they wake up the next morning and say, uh, <laughs> what happened? It was supposed to be 1863 here on this mountain. You said so. You, you had this huge, very convincing mathematical layout of all of how these numbers correspond to events and timetables and so forth. Well, I, I forgot this one event. So it's three years from now. Oh, okay. Okay, that makes sense. Three years later, uh... <laughs> Church groups, they're of a certain bent. Um, Baptists tend to be more prone to this because they have a very different theology of the end than Lutherans or Catholics. Try to use these, date, these numbers to figure out dates. You'd think if they were it's a fool's Christians, they would know Christ said No right. one knows that they No, I know, standard. but... Uh, it's not only, and it's not all Baptists. It's not only Baptists. Baptists and Pentecostals and those holiness movements have been very prone to that throughout history, and they've made many predictions. Obviously, every single one of them has been wrong. Because here we are today. <laughs> so, my that's my long-winded answer of saying I have no idea what it means, <laughs> and that's why I don't try to take too many stabs at what these numbers tend to mean. All right, somebody want to read the next, but key point we want to focus on here, Dragon is the devil. He's been from a very early time, obviously, in the whole history of the universe since God created it, trying to destroy what the God was bringing forth through his appointed bride, the church or, the, or Israel, namely the birth of Christ. He obviously fails. Um, she gives birth to this son, a male child who will rule all nations with an iron scepter. That's almost verbatim, the promise in Genesis made to the one who would descend from the tribe of Judah. He will rule with an iron scepter, so on and so forth. And all the promises related to Christ. So that's why we can say fairly clearly, the child in Revelation was almost, is almost certainly meant to be Jesus. Uh, so what happens? Seven and... Let's go to seven... Through uh, 12. So, there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, and the ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth, and his angels with him. I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power of the kingdom of God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers who accuses him before our God day and night has been hurled down. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of the testament. And they and they did not love their lives so much to shrink from dread. Therefore rejoice your, you heavens and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. All right. There's a lot of stuff in that verse, those sets of verses that's worth pointing out in connection with this. Um, first of all, very directly, there's no guessing who the dragon is at this point. It overtly says, this is the devil, the Satan. Revelation doesn't make that clear uh, identification very often. This is one of those helpful places where it does. So clearly this is Satan. And by the way, what has he done? He has led the whole world astray. This is clearly the arch nemesis of God. Even though he's created by God, even though he's his power is bracketed by God, he has no hope of ever overcoming God. God already knows how to manage Satan perfectly well. Nevertheless, Satan is the arch enemy of God who who's Great purpose is to try to lead the whole world astray and to thwart his Christ. So that's one very big point in this. Um, another big point. Where, what happened, first of all, uh, up in heaven, what uh, happened between uh, this uh, devil and his angels, by the way, so all of these that followed him, and the rest of the heavenly host? War. There was a war. There was apparently an active, uh, we don't know what it means to say there's a war in heaven. Again, Revelation is giving us um, 
pictures that we can understand to describe realities that we could not hope to understand. Just like angels don't look like us, talk like us, don't have bodies like us, it's hard to imagine us, very earthly, body-bound beings, what it would be like to be an angel. So it would be very hard to us to understand what actually happened up in these cosmic reaches beyond our existence, our physics, our everything. Uh, so it paints it in terms we can understand. Some kind of conflict or war between the good angels and the bad angels. By the way, who's the leader of the good angels in this big battle? Michael. Michael. Same one who cropped up in the Old Testament as the uh, defender of God's people and uh, the one who uh, kept them safe from certain enemies. So, Archangel Michael, one of probably the, uh, as far as we could tell from Scripture, probably the highest of the angels opposes Satan, and uh, whatever this battle, this war looks like, however long it takes, it's hard to say whether there was a timetable per se, because I'm not sure time exists where angels are. In any sense, the devil is cast down by angels and Michael. Uh, by the way, that's why you often have those statues. You ever see that angel with his spear standing on the head of a dragon driving it down? That's uh, very popular in Catholic circles. It's basically a picture of this. The angel Michael conquering the devil by driving the spear down into the head of a dragon, namely the devil. Um, not to say that he destroys the devil. What happens to this dragon? Where is he hurled to? He, is, he comes down, he's thrown down to our realm. <laughs> And uh, as, we, as we hear, this is actually, you might say, if you were comparing it to warfare here on Earth, this is kind of like um, D-Day on the beaches of Normandy. The war is functionally over now that that battle is won. I mean, our, that battle is won, the war is won. It's just a matter of time. Of course, we know it was several, it was a couple months, years after that invasion, before the war actually ended. But by all accounts, that was the beginning of the end for the Nazis, right? You might say it's kind of similar to what we're talking about here. As soon as Satan loses this great battle in heaven and is cast down from his place, the war is functionally lost. Uh, God's power and his Christ are obviously going to reign victorious. And by the way, in that little uh, hymn that's uh, given by this voice that John overhears saying what the significance of this is, it spells out a lot about what the devil is and who he, what he does. The great accuser who accuses our brothers day and night. That is to say, constantly trying to drive a wedge between them and God. He accuses them to God. What's happened to him? He's been hurled down. He has lost his place in heaven. Uh, so not, he's never coming back to heaven. He is cast out of the presence of God. He's never going to be allowed to enjoy the blessedness of uh, basking in the glory of God. He will forever be cast out. His, and he knows, as it says, his time is short. He knows he's going to lose. So what does he do? Well, since we're a little past time, I'll just summarize. We'll come back to it later and read it in detail. Um, he realizes what happens. So what does he do? He pursues the woman. He pursues the church. He tries to destroy her and basically bring as many people into his condemnation with him as he can. Misery loves company, and the devil isn't repentant. In fact, he's hardened in his self-will um, and goes so far as to try to actively destroy as many as he can. Anyway, let's, uh, I'll just make one comparison to history just to say, well, how could anything, any, even an angelic being do that? How many of you are familiar with Alexander the Great? Great conqueror of the Greeks. He wanted to try to conquer the whole world. Well, he got up to the border of India and wanted to keep pushing on into India and China. But, you know, after 10, 11 years on the road, his soldiers said, we're not going any further. Time to go home. And uh, Alexander, great leader, right? Just amazing person. You know what he did? Rather than go a few miles to the uh, Persian Gulf to get his people onto boats, he marched them through the harshest desert so he could kill as many of them as he wanted because as they could. So he says, I'll give you what you want, but I'm going to drag as many of you down into destruction as I can because I'm mad at you that you didn't give me what I want. That's the heart of rebellion against God. It cannot see past its own failures, its own evil. It can only see the injustice it perceives done to it and keeps acting 
and lashing out to persist in it. So it goes with the devil. Let's pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.